Welcome back. It's Black Stage Podcast. And on today's podcast, we have U.S. Congressman Adriano Espiat joining us today. Uh, the congressman is a uh, trailblazer in his own right. He has been able to break a lot of barriers and he is not done yet. He is someone who has been able to really kind of think about what it is to be a service leader and how you are going to serve your constituents continuously and constantly in the face of a global pandemic. Uh, it's not easy, y'all, but he's doing it. And uh, we were so excited to talk to him about politics, uh, his journey, race, uh, and what he really kind of looks at when it pertains to the next generation of leaders. So enjoy this conversation. Make sure you take notes. And uh, this is the Black Stage. Congressman, thank you so much for uh, joining us today. We are super honored to have you today. And thank you know, you for I know me. you're busy. I know you're very, very busy. Um, but we thank you for, for squeezing thank us you in for your schedule. Absolutely. So this podcast is all about the journey. Um, we've been able to to talk to some extraordinary individuals who have been able to share with us like how they got from point A to point B. And we would love to just discuss about discuss with you about your journey. Um, you have an amazing story. Um, and it starts all the way from the Dominican Republic. Could you could you share a little bit about your beginnings and we would love to just you know build from there well uh, first i come from a, a, a town called santiago which is right in the center of the island so like a smaller town second largest in the dr but not i think at that point it may have been three hundred thousand people uh like a nice family uh oriented town with a river as a backyard and um of course uh you know, that gave me my background of where, where I come from. And, and in many ways, it shaped me as a person. Uh, but um, my grandparents were here already in New York City uh, before I was even born. They came in the, in the 50s. And so I have a, a, a connection to New York even before I was born. And, and so when I got here, in 64, I had, had my family here, my extended family, my grandparents and my uncle were here. And so um, uh, it was a brand new journey, right? But brought with me all that stuff from back in the island, which is, you know, baseball and a river. Never went to a beach in the Dominican Republic. My first time I went to a beach it was, was in New York. Brighton Beach was my first beach. <laughs> Way to get started. I, you know, I, I didn't know, I didn't know what a beach looked like then, until I went back over there. Then yeah. I said, "Wow, what the, that that's a beach." But Manhattan Beach and Brighton Beach and Coney Island, those are the places that we used to go to. Then when we got a little older, we would go to Jones Beach and things like that, uh, Orchard Beach. But um, an experience, you know, bigger city, uh, more diverse with people from all over the world, obviously. Uh, and it gave me the, the opportunity to know other cultures, other, uh, you know, religions, of course, race. Everything was uh, so big in New York City for us that for myself and my brother and sister that I think uh, uh, in many ways, they shape who we are today. Mm -hmm. It sounds like, you know, family values played a huge part. You talk about your grandparents. Can you tell us a little bit about how your parents and your grandparents shaped, you know, who you are today? Working class, you know, that my grandmother worked in a factory uh, and she was a seamstress. My grandfather worked in the Ray-Ban uh, factory, the, the sunglasses out in Queens. My father uh, worked at a store and a gas station. Then he became the owner of the gas, small business owner. 
And so they never, you know, I, I doubt that my grandparents ever went to like a Broadway show mm-hmm. or went to, to eat at a fancy restaurant downtown. They pretty much kept themselves, uh, you know, to their neighborhood. Yeah. You know, north of 96. Right? They, they never really, with the exception of work, they never really venture outside of, of their neighborhood, kept their heads down and worked long hours. And I think uh, they were very focused on making sure that we were successful. And so that's who they were. They were working class people in New York uh, in many in many ways, anonymous, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Because they were new and, and this city was big, you know, big and, and you know, they came from a small town. And, and so, but they loved, they got to, I could tell you that they, they got to love this city and uh, they got to vote for their grandson yeah. to be a member of the state legislature. You know, they weren't there for me when I became a member of Congress, but they were there for me when I was an assembly member. What what made you kind of go into this path of service, right? Of, of all the things, you know, big city, right? There's so many different things that you can do, right? What was the, your first calling? I know you grew up in an era where the civil rights movement was happening. Yes. There were so many things happening. You saw it on the news. You yes. saw it in the streets, yes. probably. Um, what kind of inspired you to it kind of go like into service? It was like a perfect storm, you know? Every the Vietnam War, every intersection, Vietnam War, civil rights movement, the revolution back in the DR. Mm -hmm. uh, You know, it was uh, all of that together. You know, and then my grandparents forcing me to go translate for them of their friends at at uh, city agencies and things like that. So all of that together was able to uh, prevent me from being anything else but someone that was very much committed to public service and helping others. So how did it begin? What was the first step? You know, I started as a, as a young teenager. We were recruited by a, a black Baptist preacher named Reverend Rucker, Dudley Rucker, who ran the, the White Rock Baptist Church on, on Sugar Hill right there okay. on 153rd Street. Okay. That's where I grew up. People think... Uh, Washington Heights begins on 155th Street. I grew up on 153rd Street, so ter- technically... Harlem born and raised. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, I was yeah. a Sugar Hill guy, right? Yeah. And so he uh, embraced many of us who were new in town, uh, couldn't speak the language, spoke that broken English, but he was uh, uh, an activist and someone that shaped us and in many ways also uh, informed us of what was going on. He was a big supporter of Adam Clayton Powell. Mm. He's the one that that led the buses uh, going to Washington when Powell was expelled from Congress. Okay. And he had to go all the way to the Supreme Court to get back into Congress. And uh, the buses were lined up there in front of my building because his church was right there. We wanted to go to Washington, but... You know, our parents were new in the country. Mm-hmm. They, they You're didn't not want going anywhere. They, they, they <laughs> us getting, getting in trouble and stuff anywhere. like that. Yeah. And we, we, we wanted to, but they didn't let us. So, mm-hmm. so uh, you know, but so that's who I knew because reading the, the daily news, uh, my grandmother used to make us read the papers to learn how to speak English. Yeah. Uh, Adam Powell was in the front page of all the papers. And, and as a kid, the first figure, right, the first, literally, the first huge uh, political figure that I encounter in the United States was Adam Clayton Powell. Wow. And so now to have my office right here mm-hmm. in the Adam Clayton Powell uh, building. Manifestation. Yeah, with his statue yeah. downstairs. Yeah. Uh, to me, I get the goosebumps. In fact, you know, I went to, uh, I, I became a member of the Education and Labor Committee because 
that was also the committee that he chaired. Wow. And I figured, you know what? I want to keep that legacy. I want to find out what he did. And he was huge. He's he's the guy that 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 constructed the safety net for America. Mm -hmm. right? All those programs that you may not consider like vital, but they're so important. Mm -hmm. He did, right? And so when I got to the 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 conference room for the committee, I saw the portraits of all these chair people mm -hmm. for the committee in, in color, you know. Uh, and I said, wow, this is something. But there was one missing, and that was Adam Clayton Powell. Interesting. And so I, I, I spoke to the chairman, Bobby Scott. I said, the man is missing from here. So we commissioned right. to get uh, his portrait in black and white, so it stands out, yeah, too. Yeah. And it stands right there now in the committee, and we had his family come, of course, to Washington to unveil it. And it was a special moment for me. That's amazing. That's amazing. Do you, building from your inspiration from Adam Clayton Powell, do you do you find yourself kind of like channeling that type of energy now that you're, you know, a U.S. congressman? I I would love to be like him, you know, but this guy was something. I mean, and I read more and more about him. And, and you know, to have Charlie Rangel and him precede me, mm -hmm. uh, to me, first of all, is an honor to be uh, in the same, you know, hallways that they walked and I would just uh, love to continue to work and accomplish some of the big things that we set out to be because these two guys accomplished huge things, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, Adam Powell brought a session of Congress right to 125th Street. Adam Powell, as I said, was the architect, passed more legislation than anybody else, was the architect of the safety net in America. Uh, of course, Rangel chair, you know, the Ways and Means Committee and was also the author of, of the Empowerment Zone and a bunch of other things. And so, you know, I'm working on the Second Avenue subway. <laughs> and I'm that's important, though. That's very that's important. important. If you talk about that, that, one, that yeah. one is going to connect Harlem to the world. You think so? Oh, yeah, no question about it. It's not, it's, not, it's not just like a local issue. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it's going to connect uh, uh, Second Avenue to the Metro yeah. uh, North uh, lines that go or to different counties across New York and even Connecticut. By bus, is going to connect to LaGuardia Airport and as such to the rest of the world. Water transportation on the Hudson side and, and Harlem Riverside, mm -hmm. and it's going to obviously re reduce the, the strap hangers on, on the Lexington Avenue line, which is one of the strongest, the most overcrowded line in the country. So it's going to do all of that, but it's going to be an economic engine for Harlem and East Harlem. So... To me, that's uh, modern. That's as big as the empowerment zone. To me, yeah. that's as big as that safety net. Yeah. You know, how do you bring transportation services to a desert where over 80 percent of the people have to take a bus on a, on a, or a train? In 2022, still, it's crazy. It's crazy, you know, and, and that's amazing that you're trying to do that. I, I think that it's so necessary. Well, you know, I tell you, many people feel that you can't build a subway anymore in New York City. Seven billion dollars for three stops. Right. Wow. So it's expensive, but yeah. it's so critical and it's state of the art. And if you build the Moynihan stations for the for Amtrak, and if you're trying to bring Penn Station for the suburbs, then yes. And you already built the first phase for the sill stocking district yep. on the east side of yep. Manhattan, then yes. 
Harlem deserves that. You can, you can go lives. to East Harlem. That's correct. That's correct. <laughs> you can go to East Harlem. That's absolutely correct. You, you building off of like some of your commentary about Rangel and, and and Adam Clayton Powell. You know, you're a trailblazer in your own, right? I hear the humility in your voice, but like you know, you know. you have been the first of of many things. You're the first uh, Dominican American in Congress. You are the first undocumented uh, yeah. person and formerly undocumented person in Congress. You know, what does that mean to you? And, and you know, there's a lot of conversation mm-hmm. continuously. But, but it's great to be the first, right? But it's better to be the best. <laughs> and so, the one person that I could tell you was not only the first but the best was Jackie Robinson. Clearly, you say who was the first black man to play baseball? Jackie yeah. Robinson. But I was telling you earlier, right? Uh, that famous play where he stole home plate, and there's still a debate. We, with him and Yogi Berra, you know, debating back in the day that who, whether he was safe, I think it was safe. You know, although I'm a Yankee fan, he was safe, clearly. But uh, he was the best, right, because of his character. The fact they threw batteries, you know, mm-hmm. big batteries mm-hmm. at, at him. Mm-hmm. They cursed at him. They called him names. You know, pictures threw at his head. You know, he was still able to perform. And keep his demeanor and his elegance on the field. What a a person, Mm -hmm. right? So Mm -hmm. he was the first, but he was the best. Mm -hmm. If I tell you who was the first Dominican to play baseball, we love baseball, you know that. You won't know because he wasn't the best. You'd think, oh, well, you know, Marichal, Big Papi, oh, you know, Pedro, A-Rod. No, they weren't the first, you know. And so it was Ossie Virgil. He was the first. For the New York, uh, for the San Francisco Giants. You're but, educating me. But nobody, you ask the average. <laughs> He's educating but, me. But, but you, ask, you ask the average Dominican. Yeah. Who was the first Dominican to play baseball? They won't know. Really? Because he what? But you said, who are the best? Right. So some people will argue, Marichalo Pedro. There's a big, in fact, there's a Facebook page, Marichalo Pedro. Marichal, of course. You know, Marichal pitched 16 innings against Warren Spann. You know, Marichal beat the Mets 23 games in a row. Marichal won three consecutive seasons over 23 games. Mm-hmm. Marichal, when he was starting out, would pitch in the morning, go home and eat and pitch at night. You know, so Marichal, Pedro used to pitch six, seven innings and then get relieved. You know, so mm-hmm. the mound, the mound had to be lower by Major League Baseball because of three pitchers. They had such an advantage. Gibson. Koufax and Marichal was so domineering in, 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 in from that mound that was this high that Major League Baseball says, no, they got an advantage. We're going to lower it. Mm-hmm. So when you change the, the rules of the game, because you're good. Yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah. you know, you're not I the first. I appreciate that you're a sports fan. <laughs> you're not the first, but you're the best, right? And so in politics, also, it's not about being the first. Right. It's about being the best. And we talk about Adam Powell. Yes, he was the first black man to go to Congress from, from New York City. But that guy was something else, you know. And, you know, he just like, he spoke out. If, he, if you ever want to see what he wanted to say, uh, just listen to his speech. Mm-hmm. What's, in, what's in your hand? Mm-hmm. Okay? Listen to that speech. And I'm sure that you will be a different person after you hear it. <laughs> 
<laughs> I got my homework. <laughs> I got my homework. But 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 for real, like when, when you think about like all these people who just see you and they're inspired by you because they see themselves in you, right? Because you are the first, right? I recognize you, you know, the best, right? The best, right? I understand that. But then also being able to be like, I can point to someone and say, hey, they had a similar journey to me. They have, they, I see myself in their experience. Does it, well, does that you know, a, a lot of, a lot of folks bring their own talents to the table, you yeah, know? Yeah. And, and so, uh, you know, there are many, for example, young people now that I find amazing, right? Yeah, in yeah. politics, in yeah. public service. I just find them to be amazing because like the raw talent that they have and the commitment, they're honest, you know, they go to Ivy League schools, uh, you know, they they put in long hours. And even at their young age, they have so much experience and they they handle themselves like pros, like seasoned pros. Mm-hmm. Right? So I am amazed at, at the talent that's out there. Uh, you know, I think that very often every generation like looks at the previous generations and says, well, you know, uh, you know, the, the previous generation says they're not as good as us. We did we did, did it this way. We had this challenge, that challenge. I say I say it differently. I say the future generation has it on us. Wow, you know, and 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 with te- and you, you throw in technology mm-hmm. on top of that, social ooh, media, all oh, that. Forget it. This, yeah. this over. Yeah, you know? yeah. I yeah. mean, I think we have a great uh, a great number of young leaders that don't have to look at me or anybody else. They. They bring it on their own. Anyone standing out to you right now? Oh, I don't want to get in trouble. <laughs> I don't want to get in trouble. He's like, I don't want to play favorites. I don't want to play no, favorites. I get, I get it. I get it. You know, there's, there's just a lot. You know, there's just a lot of talent. So, so let me build on that statement. There's a lot of talent. Um, but I want to I want to lean into a little bit about identity. Um, you know, I've had a, a lot of prominent Afro-Latinos um, on this podcast. Um, your colleague, Richie Torres. Oh, um, Natasha Alford from The Grio. Um, and they've talked about, like, the importance of visibility and the importance of acknowledging, you know, African roots. And this is something that you've spoken about a lot. Um, is there anything that you'd like to share about just the importance of, like, highlighting the African sure. experience? Sure. I mean, first and foremost, race is not ethnicity, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the African diaspora is huge. I mean, if you look at the history, it really comes from the, that triangle in the Caribbean, right. you know, the Cuba, the Dominican Republic, Puerto Rico, Jamaica, you know, those islands, as you know, that was the first stop. And then, of course, more blacks went to Brazil and, mm-hmm. and Central and South America than the United States. So mm-hmm. the diaspora is spread out, is spread out yeah. you know, and I think it's a mistake to look at it only from a U.S. optic, right? Although the U.S. optic has its own sort of like dynamic to it that must be acknowledged and recognized, right? But um, it comes from everywhere, from the Americas and beyond, actually. And when you look at the Garifonas, right, in in Honduras, who who have their own language and their own history and their own dance and culture, and you go to Costa Rica and you go to Colombia, you know, to the um, Cartagena de Indias, which is the Afro-Colombian uh, region uh, of that country. You go to Brazil, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, it's huge. The Dominican Republic, you, know, you go to Villamella, you have the Congo there. They they play the original music from from the Congo mm-hmm. and the, their descendants. You go to Samana 
and uh, free slaves, free American slaves built Samana. They still have their own, uh, their passport was like a coin that really? was given to them. They still have, they speak English. They call the church, okay. La Church, okay. right? And and they, you know, they're Williams and Wilborns, and those are the names of the family. They built that peninsula, which was a beautiful, I recommend that. They talk about Punta Cana, I speak about Salmon. <laughs> and so, um, you know, it says the history is there, right? The history is there. So for us to just be myopic and say, no, it's only us, I think is a mistake, right? Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, I, I like to look at it from that perspective, uh, that there are black people that speak Spanish, mm -hmm. that there are black people that speak Portuguese or in, in uh, Brazil, that there are black people in the English-dominated uh, islands of the Caribbean that speak English. There are black people, obviously, that speak people English here. You know, they, they speak Creole in, mm -hmm. you know, in, in Haiti and, and in, in New Orleans. Right, right. So, so this is very diverse, and, and we, we should look at it that way. Right. No, I, I agree. I agree. Do you think that, how do you, how do you think this should, this should be translated? Does, does this, is it the responsibility of families? Is it the responsibility of, of the education system? Because I think that there's a gap missing when kind of yes. understanding this. I believe very strongly that the, the education system okay. is failing us in that way. Okay. And should provide more information to us and education about who we are. Because if kids don't see themselves in what they read, if they don't see their faces there, of course, they're not interested in reading. Why are you going to be interested in reading when you don't see yourself? Right. So I think that there must be a transformation, a revolution of education that includes uh, legitimate and genuine stories of all people. Absolutely. You mentioned revolution. It feels like I don't know if we're going through a revolution, but I would say that we are going through some trying times. Right. We yes. find ourselves at the intersection of so many different conundrums. Right. With COVID-19 and, yes. and other different various different hurdles. Um, and I know, you know, as you continue to serve your constituents, you're you know trying to support people on the ground as much as possible as people are trying to navigate this. Um, what is your true hope to kind of like getting out of like this hurdle um, that we kind of find ourselves in? Uh, this new hurdle, I mean, I mean, this this is uh, an unprecedented crisis, right, of, uh, of our generations, right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, we, I don't remember World War II or I don't remember, you know, other, like, reconstruction and other trying times, right? But I tell you that this generation, our generation, you're younger than I am, so several, a little bit, a little bit. <laughs> several generations, right? Um this is the crisis of our generation yeah. that impacted us not only with uh, economic, not only with health-related issues, right, and how it, it, you know, it killed over a million people, but also in terms of economic development, right? Now we see a mental health tsunami because, of course, because you lost... Uh, Imagine losing your mother or father. Yeah. Thank God I, that didn't happen to me, and not being able to be there next to them. Imagine that marks you for life. Yeah, you know? yeah. Imagine being in a ventilator fighting for your life, life. Mm -hmm. two or three months. Imagine being holed up in your apartment with your kids and losing your job or having to shut down your business. Right? Imagine all of that happening at the same time. Mm -hmm. You know, that's, a that's a lot yeah. for anybody, any individual collectively for a society to handle. And so 
we must to dig deep. We must dig real deep inside of us to come out of this, right? And I think that the best will come out of us uh, to do that. And that means, for example, in the health arena, mm -hmm. we have to break with those uh, health disparities because it wasn't the virus that killed us. It was diabetes, It's what we eat that killed us, right? Underlying uh, conditions yeah, that they yeah, were. Underlying, yeah. you know, it wasn't yeah. the virus that killed us. It was asthma and respiratory diseases. Yeah. It was renal failure that killed us. You know, it was cardiovascular problems that killed us. You know, so those days we have to begin to eliminate them, not have them in perpetuity. And, and then, of course, we saw how fragile our economy is that many businesses were just like on a month-to-month -month basis right. surviving. And, of course, the pandemic came in here, and they got some help from us, in the front, but that wasn't enough. And then you have us dealing with our kids at home and uh, uh, remote education. They weren't connected. They right. didn't have laptops. They didn't, the parents didn't know how to handle it. Chaos, right? And then, of course, now the mental health issue. Yeah. All of that together, right? So, yes, this is a crisis and we got to come together and we need our best to come forward and make it happen. Yeah, absolutely. And, and what would I, what would you say is your hope um, for the next generation? Because, you know, we, we, we look at like what, what's kind of currently going on right now, but there's a lot of good happening too, right? Yes. There's incredible, you know, just inspiring, amazing work that's happening on the ground virtually. Um, you know, what, what's your hope for the next generation? I hope that the next generation uh, continues uh, to move uh, our country forward, right? Uh, and I tell you why I say that, because, uh, you know, I've been traveling uh, around the country and we need a lot of help. The infrastructure, our country needs major investment. Um, thank God we got a trillion dollars not out there to go and fix our road bridges and tunnels to do broadband and everything else. Absolutely. But, you know, you go to you go to other places in the world and their infrastructure is very modern. Mm -hmm. And so we're, 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 we're falling back a little bit. We need to catch up. And that means that, uh, that we need to be the leader that we can be. First, for our own people here, we often want to be the leader for the rest of the world and we forget our own. And then, of course, for the rest of the world. And I think that we can do that. There's an opportunity to do that, you know. And I think that this is the moment for young people. That's why, for example, the Second Avenue subway is such an exciting project. Not yes, because it's going to connect Harlem to the rest of the world. Right, right. Because it's going to provide economic opportunities Absolutely. for young people that are going to be trained at the Charles B. Rangel uh, Infrastructure and Transportation Institute at City College. Mm. And so those job prevailing wage jobs should be going to some of our, our kids so they can be part of the middle class, right? Because prevailing wage means you could be making $200 an Absolutely. hour. Absolutely. So, you know, I want as many people in my district to make $200 an hour as possible. Absolutely. As we close this conversation, one of your um, favorite uh, interviews on the internet is with Zeus and uh, Oh, Aaron. those guys. <laughs> and, and, oh, and, 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 and I watched that interview. Oh, those guys. You, you know they love you. you. Tell, you they you, love you. You can tell Key Metal that he threw me. <laughs> when he went to Showtime, he threw me under the bus, man. He forgot about Uncle Espayat. They, they need to have you on. They need to have you on. But they love you. They love you. They love you. They got all this other stuff going on. Okay. <laughs> 
You'll be back home one day. But look, you on Black Stage. We here. We here. In regards to that interview, I was like, they missed one question. And I was like, if I ever get a chance to sit down with you, I have to ask you. You're, you're a kid who grew up from, from, from Harlem. Like, I got I to gotta ask you, who's your favorite hip hop artist of all time? Uh, Tupac, of course. He went, <laughs> he went, he went to PS28. Well, I went to PS28. That was easy. That was too easy. Thank no, you. I tell you what happened to me, though. I tell you, so I'm, I'm going to say this. This is going to get me in trouble. So uh, I'm coming out of the, of the uh, Reagan Airport, right? And I get a regular person comes up with me to me uh, in, you know, with his phone, ta- taping me, and he says to me, um, do you think it's fair that, that Aesop Rocky is in jail in Sweden? Mm-hmm. I said, absolutely not. Right, right. <laughs> I got to my office. I called my daughter. I said, who's Aesop Rocky? <laughs> <laughs> He's from your district. <laughs> well, I quickly found out who he was. Right. And we learned, we led an mm-hmm. effort to get him uh, released from, from jail. Oh, wow. You know, now he's, he's going to be Rihanna's. Oh, this guy now is yeah. married to Rihanna or yeah. something like that. Bring Rihanna to Harlem. Yeah, bring, bring Rihanna. <laughs> you know, he was supposed to come back. He now okay. came back. We never saw him after he got released. But I, I met with the, uh, with the Swedish ambassador because, you know, myself and a couple of other members of Congress were pushing for him to be released, right? Mm-hmm. And she came with her bodyguards, right? They were like these two goons, you know? And we met in the Capitol in a special room. And I said, you know, um, with all due respect, Madam Ambassador, if what happened to ASAP Rocky would have happened to you with those two guys you're walking around with, it would have ended up in a different way. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and, and, you know, absolutely. She, she didn't know what to say. She didn't know what to say. So <laughs> eventually, you know, King Kardashian got involved, everybody, and then they released them from... Uh, I hope he's doing well. <laughs> <laughs> Give him a call. Give him a call. owes you a call. Okay, so you heard it here. The congressman's favorite hip-hop artist is Tupac, and he actually knows. What school did he go to? What school did he go to? He went to PS28. Yeah, that's right there. Went I went to that same grammar school, 155th Street. Wow. Before he moved out, I know there was a big Some East, West, Some East West thing with him and A little Big. bit Baltimore in the yeah, mix of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah you know, but, uh, you know, yes, yeah, Tupac, but, you know, I, I like I like Jay-Z. Okay, okay. I like some Jay-Z. Okay, okay. I like some Snoop Dogg. Okay. Oh, excuse me. Okay. I see I see those Corona commercials he's doing on TV. <laughs> At the beach, <laughs> and let's be clear: you don't like the commercials. You like the you like the music. Yeah, I like the music. <laughs> yeah. Yes, that's amazing. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Sir. This has been a pleasure. Right. I appreciate right. you.